Today I'm joined by Bob Bowen, um, who I found when I was uh, researching about um, autism spectrum disorder and neurodivergency. Um, from a personal perspective, as being part of the lost generation that were missed for formal ASD screening during childhood, and who is now as an adult beginning to make sense of the puzzle. Um, initially, I came across Bob's article, The Myth of Attention-Seeking Behaviour, Supporting Health and Wellness in People with Autism Spectrum Disorders and Intellectual Disabilities. Um, I got in touch with Bob and he was kind enough to agree to the interview, as well as sending me follow-up articles. Um, one in particular also stood out, Despair and Hope, The Healing Power of Listening. Um, Bob's research is innovative, groundbreaking, and it seems as a form of advocacy for individuals with neurodivergency with a unique perspective, with the insights that he presents in his research, um, which at Odyssey Global Media, we think from a grassroots perspective, really empowers individuals to have um, agency over their narrative. And um, thank you so much for joining us today, Bob, and agreeing to the interview. Um, we're so very grateful um, for your time and your efforts. Um, can we start off, um, if you can tell us uh, a bit about your background, please? Sure. Um, thank you for uh, for reaching out. Uh, it's uh, it's always an honor to to uh, to have people write to me and tell me that uh, the stuff that I've written over the years has been helpful for them. That's uh, why I do this. Uh, so uh, next year, the 2024, will be my 50th year in, uh, in human services, uh, which means a couple of things. Uh, first, I'm an old guy. Uh, I, I'm in my 70s and I should be retired, uh, but I still have things to say. And, uh, and so uh, as long as I've got the energy to, to travel and, uh, and do the work I do, um, I'm not planning on retiring. <laughs> I'm still writing and still teaching and, uh, and uh, loving, uh, loving what I do. My background is in social work. Uh, my, my bachelor's degree is, uh, is in social work from the University of Northern Iowa. Uh, and uh, I've spent uh, two years at a Mennonite seminary in uh, Indiana. Uh, if people are not familiar with Mennonites, uh, you probably have heard of the Amish. Uh, we are like the Amish theologically, so we we uh, we don't believe in the use of violence, uh, but we dress uh, just like everybody else. So we we uh, we fit in a bit bit uh, bit easier than Amish folks do. Uh, I, I decided not to to stay um, in, in ministry because um, that that wasn't what I was called to do. Um, I, I, I'm supposed to do this uh, and uh, uh, live my life in a way that, um, uh, as I put it, I, I try to invite people to change behavior um, instead of telling them they have to change their behavior. Uh, uh, in addition to my formal education, uh, I've, I've taken tons of workshops over the years from a variety of different people. But my most important instructors have been the people that I've supported over the years. And uh, I, I try not to use the word client because the, that word has 
a coercive root to it uh, in Old English. And my work is built on the idea of uh, using non-coercive uh, approaches to invite behavior change as opposed to uh, uh, the more usual uh, approach that, that says, well, sometimes we have to use restrictive practices uh, because we have no choice. Uh, and um, I, I want to get um, better and better and better at what I do so I don't have to use restrictive practices under any conditions. Uh, I'm not that good yet, uh, but I've gotten better. Uh, and uh, in my work, I use very few restrictive practices. And when I do, it's only with the permission of the individual that I'm supporting. Um, I, I'll tell one story to sort of uh, um, uh, show the, the the way I do my work. Uh, uh, years ago, uh, an individual that I supported was uh, was living in a state uh, facility in the state of Iowa. Uh, he was six years old when he was uh, institutionalized. He was forty nine when uh, when he uh, came out. So he'd spent forty three years living in this institution. And, uh, and my job was to uh, facilitate his transition into the community, and he was going to live in an apartment by himself. And so I got an apartment uh, without having met him uh, and uh, furnished it just a little bit so he'd have a bed to sleep in and a couple of chairs to sit in. And then my idea was that I'd, I'd build the rest of his life with him. Uh, he had never cooked before, so my first responsibility was to teach him how to cook, and uh, and he wouldn't do that. And he sat still. Um, he didn't respond to me. Uh, he didn't interact with me. Uh, and so at the end of the session, I said, well, I'll, I'll cook you two meals, uh, and then I'll come back tomorrow. Because uh, I cooked one meal you could eat now and one for the refrigerator, and then I came back the next day, and the same thing happened. He wouldn't talk with me. And the third day, he wouldn't talk with me. And the fourth day, I went and he asked me if I'd ever played cribbage. Uh, I had never even heard of cribbage, let alone play uh, cribbage. And uh, if people are not familiar with it, it's a card game played with a board. Uh, and, uh, and so he taught me how to play using uh, uh, the deck of cards open-faced so um, I could see his cards and he could see mine. I learned the rules, and uh, and then he promptly beat me um, three games in a row. And then he put the cards away, and he looked at me, and he said, teach me how to cook. What I learned uh, from, from, from that day and from talking with him later was that he was not willing to be taught until he could teach. He didn't want to be in a role where I had more power than he did. He didn't want to be in a role... Uh, where he was less than. He needed to be equal. Yeah, and uh, and that was just a real eye-opening uh, moment for me uh, because we're, I, I'd only worked in the field of disabilities for about five years, uh, but I, I had assumed that my role was, was to teach uh, and to be the professional uh, and to have uh, some objectivity uh, and uh, and he just blew that all out of the water. Yeah, and he became one of my best friends uh, and a great teacher. Uh, and uh, and he did learn how to cook. And uh, he lived uh, he lived a good life in the community. Uh, uh, and 
uh, yeah. Um, so his name is Tom. Tom gave me permission to use his name uh, as I do my work because he wanted other people to learn from our experience. Uh, and ever since then, I have asked myself the question, what can I learn from you? Uh, and uh, as I go in to do my work, uh, I'm I'm called to to uh, uh, enter people's lives. Uh, usually, when when there are significant behaviors of concern, where either they have injured themselves or they've injured someone else, yeah. And um, I, uh, I I always come in the way Tom taught me to, uh, and and that is um, identifying who the person is, um, as opposed to only focusing on what they do. Such a poignant and beautiful story. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um, so meaningful, you know, the way that you've kind of taken that approach. It's got elements of um, self-advocacy, self-leadership, and a lot of dignity and a very humanized approach. Um, so now you have some very interesting and groundbreaking research. We'll um, start with your research titled The Myth of Attention-Seeking Behavior, Supporting Health and Wellness uh, in People with Autism Spectrum Disorders and Intellectual Disabilities. How does the article, the research, emphasize the importance of safety, affection, and acceptance in relation to attention-seeking behaviors? Okay. So one of the most common reasons uh, that uh, is is uh, put in someone's referral form uh, is the idea that this person wants attention. Uh, I often will hear people say they're only engaging in this behavior for attention. Uh, and uh, and I, I, when I teach, I tell a story from, from my own background. Uh, and uh, I... Uh, my father was in my adoptive father was in the army, American army, and so I moved from school to school, uh, and went to twelve different schools before I graduated uh, from high school. And in my school in the third grade, um, I came there in the middle of the year, and uh, so I didn't know anybody, and uh, and the teacher assigned everyone uh, by by their first name and last initial. So I was Bob B. Uh, uh, the problem was there was a young man there whose uh, name, surname also began with B. Uh, and so he became Bob B.A. and I became Bob B.O. Now, in, in American English, uh, when you want to uh, put someone down, you tell them they have body odor and you go B.O. And, uh, and when, when the teacher said, this is Bob B.O., all the kids laughed. Yeah, and I got a reputation and I was picked on, and uh, and and if you know anything about American schools, maybe all schools, uh, is that once a kid gets a negative reputation, um, that kid owns it. Uh, and uh, and so, uh, man, I, I got picked on, I got beat up, uh, and I learned that the only way uh, for me to be safe was for the teacher to pay attention to me. So I learned to engage uh, in a series of behaviors uh, that made the teachers uh, look at me and pay attention to me because then um, I, I wouldn't get hit. Uh, and on my third grade report card, which I still have, uh, it says that Robert, because uh, my, my parents called me Robert, uh, said Robert has uh, uh, the potential to be a really good student 
but his uh, attention-seeking behaviors get in the way. Uh, and, and that's wrong. Um, I didn't want attention. I wanted safety. Um, uh, and I used attention in order to get safety. And, and what I've learned by, by listening to people and, and reading uh, is that uh, there are a whole series of things that people want, um, and they use attention to get what they want or what they need. Uh, attention, in a way, is the doorway that gets us to where we need to be. Uh, in my case, um, I needed um, safety. Uh, and so I used behaviors that would draw attention to me in order to get safety. Uh, there's a, a, a writer named Linda Albert who's, who's written a book, uh, and I can't remember the name of it, but it's quoted in the article, uh, and, in which she says that uh, people uh, really, really need um, these things that start with the letter A. They need affirmation. They need acceptance. They need acknowledgement. They need assistance. Uh, a, attention is how they get these things. And uh, so what I've learned to do is to try to identify what do you really need here? Uh, and, and often it's as simple uh, as, as saying, uh, um, that was really good. You did a great job. I so appreciate what you did. Thank you. Or, boy, you put some hard work into this. I am so proud of you. And when, when you give people affirmation and acknowledgement, uh, when you give them assistance and affection, uh, before they ask for it, uh, before uh, they behaviorally start to say, I really need this, um, then you can minimize uh, behaviors of concern from even happening when you create structures that give people what they need uh, before they, they recognize they need it so badly that they have to use behavior to get those needs met. Absolutely. And, and it's just so wonderful, you know, that you've got this humanistic perspective and, and you come from a place of understanding and wisdom, which makes all the difference. Um, and how might the understanding presented in your article help improve support and interventions for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and intellectual disabilities? So there, there's this, this approach that many people take uh, where you put the diagnosis ahead of the person uh, and you say, this is the person with an intellectual disability. This is the person with autism. Uh, and uh, and and e even though you may may use the right words and the right technology and and uh, talk about neurodivergence, um, there's this underlying um, theme in human services that says when people have this diagnosis, they need this treatment, uh, and and so you you in essence have a uh, a textbook that says for these um, particular diagnoses, uh, you would use these approaches. And for others, you would use other approaches. Uh, and, and that's well and good. I do need to have some guidance in terms of, of how I can support a person. But before I do that, I have to know who the person is. And we tend in, in our field to focus on what people do instead of who people are. 
And what I've learned from Tom and other people is that who you are uh, is uh, is more important than what you do. Yeah, because people use behavior. They don't just have behavior. And, uh, and the more I get to know you as a person, the easier it is to support you as a person to get what you need or get away from the things that you don't need or don't want. Uh, in behavior theory, there's two reasons behind behavior. One is called acquisition. Uh, what do you want to get? And the other um, is um, escape. What do you want to get away from? Uh, and you can you can think about all behaviors in, in those two terms. Uh, and, and before I get to that, um, I really want to find out who you are uh, and spend as much time as I can um, uh, identifying who are you? Um, getting to know you as a person, getting to know your family. If you still live with family, getting to know the people that are important to you. Uh, and so in my assessment process, I spend a lot of time um, just hanging out with people uh, and uh, and getting to know them uh, before I start saying, well, here are some things that we can do. That's wonderful um, to hear and very empowering, actually. Um, you know, it's, it's perspective like yours that can really make things better, create meaningful change and um, allow the humanness, the humanity to to return to the individuals, you know, that are that are utilizing the human services. Um, do you think merely labeling individuals as attention seeking takes away their humanity? Yes, yeah. Um, when, when all we do is focus on what you do, uh, when, when when our focus is on understanding that that what you're seeking here is attention, we don't get to know you as a person. Uh, we don't get to know the things you really want. Uh, in, in the article I wrote, uh, I quoted from an assessment done by a psychiatrist and psychologist together, which is frankly a really good idea. Um, so having two professionals uh, write an assessment together about a person is wonderful. And I I see lots of great assessments like that by uh, psychologists and occupational therapists working together. That's wonderful. In this case, what they did was, was they looked at the behavior of this person and, and identified when the behaviors occurred. And then they said that what this person wanted was attention. Um, but it really wasn't. Um, uh, she, she, didn't, she didn't want just attention. She wanted um, acknowledgement and affirmation. Um, she she wanted the kinds of things that you and I want in our lives, uh, and um, the the barriers to her getting um, those things were were found in her uh, in in her neurodivergence uh, because she had difficulty in social relationships, she had difficulty in communication, uh, and so by working on communication and social relationships. Uh, we were able to teach her how to get the uh, the affirmation and the acknowledgement uh, that she needed to do her job well. That's really wonderful. Um, and thank you, you know, for having that point of advocacy as well, that sort of that viewpoint. 
Moving on to your research title, Despair and Hope, The Healing Power of Listening. Um, could you please provide a brief summary of that? Sure. Um, I had, um, uh, I, I was working uh, in the state of Iowa and uh, a, a woman was found uh, by the police uh, who it turns out had been abducted five years previously by a motorcycle gang um, and used as a sexual slave. Uh, and uh, she was affected by an intellectual disability and they had some communication impairments. Uh, and uh, as the, the hospital staff were doing their assessment uh, before I met her, uh, she she told them that she'd had a baby in that hospital, uh, and uh, and there was there was no record of that, uh, and uh, and they they said, well, um, you know, what happened to the baby, and and she said, well, some uh, some men in a helicopter um, came came down from a ladder, and then they went back up, and they came down the ladder, and they took my baby, and they went up, uh, and as people listened to her. Um, they thought, wow, this is delusional to me. And so she got um, a diagnosis of schizophrenia because it, it just, it just isn't real, you know? And uh, as I was listening to her, uh, I do what I, I usually do. I pretend to be the person. Uh, and um, I asked myself, how would I feel? What would I think? Um, if I were uh, if I were pregnant and I were um, laying on this gurney and being taken in this room with a bright light above me, and there were uh, there were doctors working on me and their hands would come in and out of the light, how would I describe that to people? And I would have to use um, descriptors uh, from what I'd seen on television, what I'd seen in real life. And if I were limited in my 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 uh, my capacity to, put those words together, then I might come up with an idea that said, well, there was this helicopter. Uh, and uh, and then, then just go on. It, it wasn't uh, a, uh, uh, a delusion uh, that this woman had. It was an interpretation of something that happened to her. And, uh, and she had limitations in her ability to communicate that. Uh, so um, I, I went with the assumption that she's telling me the truth. Uh, now let's see if I can prove it. Uh, and working with the, the state, we were able to, to go back and identify that, yes, she did have a baby. And because of her intellectual disability, it was taken away from her uh, without her knowledge or consent because um, uh, the, the state, um, and this was you know 40 some years ago, um, uh, could and did and still do um, uh, work on you the assumption that people with disability um, uh, don't have the same rights that other people do. So I listened to her and uh, and I, I listened to everybody that I uh, have the opportunity to encounter and, and work with and get to know. Uh, and I always ask myself, um, what would I feel if I were you? Um, if I'm working with someone who can't communicate at all, I asked myself, what would it take for me to engage in this behavior? Um, what, what, what would it take for me to be so angry um, that I would um, harm other people uh, or frustrated or anxious? Uh, and I try to identify those core feelings that are there uh, that lie behind anger 
because anger is not an emotion. Anger is a secondary behavior um, subsequent to an emotion. So people who are angry are people who were frustrated or anxious, uh, people who had had endured loss, uh, and uh, and anger is is the way they express that. Yeah. So. I've learned to listen uh, and to identify with the people I support, uh, and um, it seems to work. Um, absolutely. I, I think when I read that article, I think she was giving the name Isabel. It was such a such a poignant, such a sad story, and I and 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 I felt um, my mother had schizophrenia, so I just felt because she had the word delusional. A disorder on her file that kind of uh, not allowed but kind of um made worse some of the abuse that she kind of went on to suffer the trauma um and i think maybe as another point of discussion and conversation that we have to kind of really look into when we use terms like delusion delusional disorder um with the with the people that are providing services or in the wider community do they then further go on to abuse that individual because they think oh, oh they're vulnerable or they won't be believed or you know they're in a position of weakness and vulnerability so we can do as we please and i think that really makes a difference and you you believed her um you looked at the communication tools that she had and you were able to interpret and you were able to find a truth that she was telling the truth about her baby but she just did not have the the tools that possibly neurotypical individuals utilize in terms of communicating um and in a way bob you know it has to be said in a way maybe you saved her saved her life you know and increased the quality of her life which is not an easy feat to do um and it's incredibly incredibly inspirational that you did so um and then according to your article what contributes to this sense of despair and loneliness in the relationship between service providers and recipients? Um, several things. Uh, one is is actual true loneliness, um, uh, not having other people um, really listen to you uh, and interact with you, and, but rather they interact with you as um, a... Uh, a client, a recipient of services, uh, and and they they don't take the time to to know you. Uh, another is the power differential uh, that exists uh, between uh, those who provide services and supports and those who receive them. Uh, and uh, in in the work I do, I've learned to um, as much as possible uh, divest divest myself of power. Uh, so um, I don't use uh, use power and control um, in the work I do, uh, but rather seek to establish a relationship uh, where um, I'm on the same level uh, with the individual, and then I teach staff um, to approach it in that same way. Uh, uh, I think loneliness uh, is uh, is pervasive. Uh, there's a, a writer who's um, uh, name is David Betoniak, and his essay is called Loneliness is the Only Disability. Uh, and what it means by that is that, that um, loneliness um, is the most powerful disability 
um, among a list of possible disabilities. So uh, when, when you look at the folks that, that I support um, and, and they have, uh, you know, diagnostic classifications like intellectual disability or um, autism spectrum disorder or schizoaffective disorder, um, uh, the real disability that, that, that maintains their powerlessness is the intense loneliness that they feel. And uh, in, a, in a sense, what, what they need is someone um, to, uh, to hang out with them and be with them uh, and, uh, and treat them like another human being. Uh, and, and that's it. Uh, and I, I can be that person, but I can only do that on a short-term basis. So part of my work is finding volunteers uh, who can, um, uh, can, can be um, that, that person or a series of people um, who can just hang out with you and uh, and just hang out with you because you're a really cool person uh, and uh, f finding finding ways to build relationships um, is the central part of the work that I do absolutely and and I think you know even if if people are neurotypical or neurodivergent whatever whatever you know skill that you're on as humans we're not built to be alone um, so loneliness is definitely something that is, um, maybe it's a societal taboo that it's seen to be a weakness if you kind of try to address it or speak out about it. Uh, maybe people do not have the communication tools to sort of address it as, as it should be. Um, but equally, I also believe whether you're on the spectrum or not, everybody has that right that right to have company, that right to not be lonely, and to progress onto normal human relationships, um, which is the right of any individual to progress in, in their lives. So it's great that you're kind of um, ad advocating in that sense as well to provide the, um, the pathway of progression. Circling in on that theme of loneliness, how do you think loneliness makes worse the despair experienced by people in human service settings? Oh, um, despair is probably the most common feeling that people report uh, when they're able to, to look that deeply inside themselves. Uh, many of the people that I support can't put the feeling of despair into in, in, into words, uh, and um, that sense of, of despair, of powerlessness, at being able to change um, your life, uh, is is something that 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 is probably present in the vast majority of the folks that I've supported over the years. Uh, that that idea that this is my life and I can't change it. Uh, and there's there's no hope, uh, and uh, and that that I I, I feel that um, among not just people affected by disability, uh, but by people who are mired in poverty, and by uh, immigrants that I've worked with over the years, uh, who feel that that they're trapped, um, and they can't get out, uh, and. Uh, and so a, a good part of the, the work that I do 
um, is is finding ways to empower uh, people who have been disempowered um, either because of the disability or their circumstances. It's so it's so vital the work that you're doing because it, I think, in a way, addresses the hidden truths and the struggles that you know people experience. But again, because of the communication tools, they might not be able to state it. And and sometimes you know I just keep thinking about Isabel's case study, just because she had those particular labels on her file that made her even more vulnerable. And I think there also needs to be talk about how vulnerable individuals in society are kind of treated and in terms of their in terms of their rights, you know, does having labels such as diso, dis, delusional disorder make worse the loneliness that someone's experiencing, you know? Um, does it deprive them of their pathway? to normal human relationships through their progression. And I think these are some, some things that as a community, as a global society, we kind of really need to sort of think about. Um, so do you think that a lack of understanding of communication tools can lead to these vulnerable individuals further experiencing trauma um, and that allowing them to take charge of their narrative empowers not only the individual, but the society as a whole. Absolutely. Um, uh, communication is a, a core human need, uh, according to a model called the matrix of needs. Uh, and uh, and pe people want to communicate. And they try hard to communicate. The challenge is that many of us don't know how to listen uh, when we uh, interact with people whose... Um, style of communication is radically different from ours, um, usually because of, of neurodivergence, sometimes because of intellectual disability, sometimes because of physical disability. Uh, that, that, that idea that people want to communicate um, uh, has to be central um, to our understanding of their behavior. Um, we, we have to say behavior is communication. We, we say that a lot, and we talk about that, but I'm not sure that we really believe it uh, and, and operate um, in that way, with our first question being, what is this, this person trying to tell me? Our first question is usually, what are they doing? Uh, and uh, and we, we don't understand uh, that this person is trying to communicate. And that, that brings brings me to, to the idea of the social model of disability um, that understands that disability um, is uh, is the result of interactions between many different components. Um, uh, the medical model, uh, with, which I grew up under, um, says that disability um, lies within the person. And so it's your neurodivergence, it's your um uh delusional disorder uh, that uh is uh, is 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 keeping you uh from attaining your goals uh when in fact um the uh the disability uh lies uh, within the social um uh understandings the social constructs 
um, that we have in our society. Uh, and uh, we, we need to understand that in order to really support people, we need to understand the entire context um, of their lives uh, and uh, with whom they interact, um, who interacts with them, uh, what are the um, well, what are the factors that uh, maintain the behavior, and what are the factors that uh, that keep the behavior uh, from from being able to rem- to be remediated? Um, so, um, why isn't this person, to use the medical word, why aren't they getting better? Uh, and and uh, sometimes we ask ourselves, we've done all the right things, and why aren't they getting better? And and the answer is because the disability doesn't lie within them. Um, it lies um, within the the construct of the society in which we live. That's um, incredibly powerful statements to make and um, empowering as well. You're absolutely right. Um, you know, from a from a personal perspective, again, you know, just in terms of advocacy, I I, I do I do think you know sometimes. Again, having those labels creates those barriers in the way that individual is treated and they don't have access to their rights because it at times those rights are purposefully taken away and the progression, again, to a human life is restricted. And I think that is one of the saddest things and one of the cruelest things that can occur in, in the world, um, I often, I don't know if it's a bit extreme saying this, but I often think, you know, when we think about crime and we think about sin, we think murder as the worst crime that you can commit. But nobody really talks about people being murdered on the inside. <laughs> you know, there's physical murder. We have punishment for that. But what about mm-hmm. psychological murder where you know, individuals are let down or they're further traumatized and, and they're dying on the inside. And and it's just one of the saddest things in the world. Um, how did your experience in writing poetry enhance your ability to listen to people and understand their experiences? Oh, I, that, that's a great question. Thank you for that. Um, people sometimes ask me um, what what my identity is, uh, like you know, what roles are are primary for me. Uh, am, am I a poet who does behavior support, or am I behavior or am I a behavior support practitioner who writes poetry? And I think the answer is that at heart, I'm a poet. Yeah, and and what that means is that um, I try to look at, uh, at the world uh, and the people uh, in, in the world, in my life, um, through, through the lens of an artist. Uh, and uh, my medium um, is words. Uh, and, and so I reflect back um, in, in the art that I create and what it is that I um, experience at a an emotional level, at a psychological level, uh, and uh, and reflect back um, using my own words um, what it is that um, I've, I've just I've felt here, um, or I've thought here, or I've seen here, 
uh, and I try to create something that contains the uh, the whole spectrum of of human emotion um, in as few words as possible. Um, so I don't write haiku poetry, uh, uh, which are limited to uh, a specific number of syllables and a specific number of lines. Um, but I do try try to uh, to use as few words as possible uh, to uh, to understand and then reflect. Uh, I use that same approach uh, as I um, uh, do my work as a behavior support practitioner, uh, and um, I try to feel my way through this as opposed to think my way through this. Uh, at the same time, I'm really cognizant of of the need for clarity of thought um, and the need for really good, precise constructs um, that support people. Uh, and uh, and so I, I in no way want to denigrate the the uh, the cognitive and psychological aspects of, of the work I do. Uh, but as a poet, um, the uh, the interaction at a human level, um, is is what's most important to me, and I think is what has empowered me uh, to uh, to have a a bit of success uh, in helping people live um, their own ordinary lives. It's really wonderful to hear, and again, um, again, very uplifting and inspiring and. Adding that human element is just so important, you know, through your work of poetry as well. Um, what are some of the primary themes that emerge from the stories and experiences of individuals living on the margins of society? I didn't get the question. Can I say it again? Oh, sorry. Um, so from your research, what are some of the primary themes that are emerging, you know, from the case studies that you look at, um, and the stories and experiences of individuals living on the margins of society. Uh, I think that that the um, what stands out for me is that people who live on the margins um, are people who are often ignored, uh, and then then we just we just go in and we we do our interventions. Uh, and then we walk away and we feel like we've done our job uh, when really all we've done is to maintain the person on the margins. Uh, and, and we haven't we haven't brought any resolution. We haven't brought any any hope um, to that person. 